Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now. Would you like to relax or fall asleep while learning about history? If so, then try my podcast, Calm History. You'll learn all about famous explorers, inventions, civilizations, ancient wonders, and even the Titanic. Just search your podcast player for Calm History or go to calmhistory.com. Hello, welcome to Emotional Badass, where Moxie meets Mindful. I'm your host, Nikki Eisenhower, life coach and psychotherapist. And on today's episode, I'm sitting down with Eric Zimmer from the One You Feed podcast, where we discuss addiction, growth, and recovery. needed to be parented in a more sensitive way than I was you know so I don't think they were abusive my dad you might say was a little abusive in in the yelling but for whatever reason by the time I was like 10 I was a kleptomaniac so I was not doing well from a very early age you know I was acting out very early on in very extreme ways all through my teenage years and and all the way up until I you know, jumped with uh, both feet into the pool of addiction. I am here with Eric Zimmer. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I am happy to be here. You have quite the story and I have been excited to have this opportunity to interview you for a long time. You are host of The One You Feed and that is a reading that has been very special to my heart for many, many, many years as a new little green baby therapist in New Orleans, <laughs> I was teaching an addiction recovery group with that reading. And so I was looking for that reading one day and your podcast popped up. And that's how I originally found you years ago. So I am really happy. It feels full circle for me in a lot of ways to bring in someone that, that loves that reading the way that I do. Would you share that reading with the listeners? Sure. It's an old parable. We don't really know where it comes from. Some people attribute it to Native Americans. Other people say that's not what it is. I actually just interviewed two Native Americans. They're like, I don't know. So nobody knows where it comes from, but it goes like this. There's a grandparent who's talking with their grandchild and they say, in life, there are two wolves inside of us that are always at battle. One is a good wolf, which represents things like kindness and bravery and love. And the other is a bad wolf, which represents things like greed and hatred and fear. And the grandchild stops, thinks about it for a second, looks up at their grandparents and says, well, well, which one wins? And the grandparent says, the one you feed. And that's what all of us are doing in self-development is figuring out how to starve what we want to starve out and feed what we want to feed. 
you hold so much beautiful space for other people to share their stories. I would really like to hold some space for you to be able to share your story. I want to know more about how you got all the way to here. <laughs> well, uh, you probably we probably need to do the short version because all the way to here at my age is a long way to go. But the narrative is basically uh, 24. I was a, a homeless heroin addict. You know, I was looking at going to jail for a long time. I weighed 100 pounds. I had hepatitis C. And and here is, you know, host of this podcast and living a really wonderful and, and um, you know, very grateful life. Uh, how I got there is the, the, the long part. I originally got sober in a 12-step tradition. I went to uh, treatment. I went to a halfway house and I got sober. And when I got out of there, I started into a software career. That was my original, uh, my original career and was very active in 12 step programs for quite some time. But about eight years in, I drank again. I drank for about three years and then, um, I've been sober about 15 years since. And so about eight years ago, I started this podcast. I didn't, I just started it as, um, I actually thought it would be good for me. I was like, you know what? I need some more positive reinforcement in my life. I was in a difficult marriage at the time. I just, you know, I wasn't doing great. I had a software or I'd had a solar energy company fail. Um, so I was just kind of, I needed something that was positive and nourishing. And my best friend, Chris is an audio engineer. So I was like, well, give us something to do together. So I started the podcast and then that just really sort of, um, you know, just brought this, you know, wellness, personal development stuff right into the heart of my life. And then from there, a coaching business emerged. And from there, the spiritual habits programs that I've created. And um, so that's kind of the version of how we got to here. But I'm happy to fill in anywhere in there that you would like more detail. Well, I know lots of our listeners are working on sobriety, living mm -hmm. sobriety, or they're sober curious, um, I work with a lot of trauma survivors. I'm a trauma survivor myself. I've got a pretty big story myself. And over the years of more psychology, more healing, um, just leaning into having a spiritual life, I have just drank less and less and less. I certainly had, I was a New Orleans French Quarter bartender <laughs> to get through school. So that's pretty much maximum debauchery that you can walk into yeah. <laughs> coming from yep. New Orleans. And I, I think we we are such a, a people of leaning into vices to mask what's really going on with us. And when we just go, people are addicted or not addicted, we make it so black and white yes. instead of more of the reality that we kind of have used these substances for lots of different reasons. Sometimes they're cushions. Sometimes they're shooting ourselves in the foot and, and figuring that out as a human being is such a messy part. I think when we're deep feelers, how did you start to kind of crawl up and out? Because there's such a, trying to put words to it, there's such a sort of sucking or, or pulling. Like oh, when yeah. I was bartending, that just, it's like that lifestyle really, really pulls you in and kind of drags you down. Yeah. I mean, I, I love everything you said because I do think this can be really confusing and people's path to wellness can look very different. Some people, uh, like I believe I am one of this type of person. I just, I need total abstinence. I just don't see, you know, I've tried every possible way I can think of. 
to not have to be completely abstinent. And it just hasn't worked for me. So, but, but other people don't, you know, and, and so it's really, everybody's, everybody's journey is a little bit different in figuring it out. As far as how I got out, you know, it took a while, you know, it, you know, I can tell this story of when I was sitting in treatment, I I went to detox and I went because I was living in a van and the van, I got arrested at work. I was, I worked a restaurant job. I got arrested at work and the van that I was living in belonged to the owner of the restaurant. So he took the van away from me and the job was where I was both earning and stealing a lot of money to pay for my $300 a day heroin habit. And so I basically just went into detox because I was like, I don't know what else to do. I just, and when I was there, they said, you need to go into long-term treatment. And I originally said, no. I was like, no, I, I can't do that. I mean, I don't know why I said that. Now I look back, I'm like, that's a crazy thing to do. But I went back to my room and I just had one of those moments of clarity where I thought, I'm, I'm either going to go to jail for a long time or I'm going to die if I go back out there. So my case was pretty stark and clear. And, and if we were filming a movie, that's the scene we would show. However, you know, I had been trying various different ways of improving my life for years before that, you know, trying to not do heroin, only drink alcohol, try and only smoke pot, don't drink alcohol, drink beer, but don't drink whiskey. I mean, you know, I had, I had been in treatment before I had, I had been in treatment. I had moved a couple different times. I thought if I just move away, you know, maybe then I won't, you know, do heroin. So it, it was a lot of different things, but for me, it was basically, it was bad enough that I hadn't, I mean, I wasn't leaving anything. I was, I, I look back on it and I'm amazed that I clung so hard to such a lousy life, you know, that I fought so hard for such a terrible life. So I just went into treatment and I just started doing what they suggested. And when they suggested I go into a halfway house, I said, okay, I'll just, you know, I just became... I became willing to do, as they say in, in 12 step programs, kind of whatever it, whatever it takes, because I was pretty clear of how sick I was, you know, how much trouble I was in. It was pretty clear how destructive the bad wolf was in my life to go back to the parable, you know? And so for me, it, it was pretty clear. What's interesting is the second time I got sober after, you know, being sober eight years and going back out and I didn't go back to heroin. I just drank and, and, and smoked pot. And that was a lot harder in some ways because things weren't that bad. You're naming such powerful things. I think, I think that resistance to even going into treatment and, and the word that's coming up for me is surrender. Yeah. That for us to really, in, in any way, whether it's addiction or something else, for us to really let go of whatever has no long, is no longer serving us and maybe never did, we really have to surrender. And our egos don't want to, despite all the evidence in the world, that that would be a good decision. And I know for me, I never checked myself into treatment for addiction, but psych ward at a certain mm-hmm. point in my life after... I pressed charges against my dad. He was my sexual abuser Mm. and I just melted down and and just could not function anymore. Just kind of hit a wall and and self-checked in. And for me, that moment, I, I think there's a real moment of identity almost of, you know, before you check in, you're the person who never had to check in. <laughs> and after you check in, you were never again. It's sort of like being arrested. You're, you don't realize it unless you've been arrested <laughs> that, beforehand, you're the person who's never been arrested. And then once you are, 
there's no going back. That's just part of your experience now. And I do think it, it hits us in our identity in a way that we rarely put into words. And when we, when we realize that, that we just have to, it's that moment of surrender that helps us open up to what's actually going to change us, what's going to grow us and get us out of the season we're in and bring us to the next season. Yeah. And that moment of surrender is a really important moment. And so is, you know, the, the continuing to day by day, moment by moment, live our way into the life we want. So again, if we were filming a movie, we'd film me at treatment saying, I will go in, right? Or some emotional scene. But the reality was it was, it was moment by moment after that, living my, you know, again and again and again, choosing recovery, you know, you know, that thousands of times. And that's, you know, that's how life, life doesn't, life doesn't pivot on a moment. I mean, it does in some ways, but it's, the, there's so many moments that lead up to it that, and then there's so many important moments after that, you know, to, to sort of try and isolate it as well. This was the moment that everything changed is a, a simplistic understanding of it. So when did you go from healing yourself to starting to lean into working with others? Well, you know, 12 step programs right from the very beginning, they say that working with another alcoholic or addict is the single best way you can ensure your own sobriety. So from very early on in recovery, I was working on helping others. Now in the beginning, that was like cleaning ashtrays and making coffee because I didn't, you know, I didn't have anything to offer people. But, you know, as soon as I was able to sponsor people, I started sponsoring people and I loved it. I mean, I just absolutely loved doing it. So, but then I kind of, you know, I, I drifted away from that. I drank, I came back, I did some of that. Um, but the podcast was really where, you know, I started it, like I said, kind of to a large extent for me. But then it kind of took off and I started seeing all the other people it was helping. And I've always known that I felt like that was where I wanted to be, but I didn't ever think there was a way to get there. So I never really allowed myself to, you know, like, how do I get from being a software, uh, you know, a product manager or, a, you know, a founder of a, of a solar company? How do I get from there to being somebody who coaches others and leads programs. I didn't see the way there, but as the podcast, it just kind of evolved, you know, one step at a time, it just sort of evolved. And, and the first time I started coaching somebody professionally, I went, Oh, I know exactly what this is. This is like sponsoring somebody. Mm -hmm. I've done this so many times and I love it. So it, it was a very, you know, once I got to the, that right place, the transition felt really natural. And I've always known that, you know, the more focused I am on helping other people generally, the better off my mental and emotional health is. Without a doubt. I, I think of the phrase, we teach what we most need to learn. Mm, yeah. Do you, like so many of the people that I work with in my own story, did you have a struggling childhood? Did you have the type of trauma that drove you to addiction? Mm, I don't know. There's some things I know and there's lots of things I don't. I have very, very little memory of my childhood. Almost, every, almost everything I know about it, I know 
largely from pictures or stories or like my memory just isn't really there. So maybe, maybe there was a big trauma there. You know, sometimes they say that's why people don't remember. So that that's possible. But if it's the case, I don't know. And I've, I've, you know, I've asked inside myself as many ways as I know how to say it's safe. If you want to talk about this, what I do know is that, um, both my parents suffered depression it showed up very differently for them. For my dad, it showed up as extreme anger. And for my mom, it showed up as just very much withdrawn and depressed. And so, and I think I was a particularly, I probably needed to be parented in a more sensitive way than I was, you know, so I don't think they were abusive. My dad, you might say was a little abusive in in the yelling, but for whatever reason, by the time I was like 10, I was a kleptomaniac. So I was not I was not doing well from a very early age. You know, I was acting out very early on in very extreme ways all through my teenage years and, and all the way up until I really, you know, jumped with uh, both feet into the pool of addiction. So that's kind of what I know. So, you know, in the, in the current language of trauma, I'd say there's, there's little T trauma in there. Is there a big T trauma? I don't know. I think that's a, enough for a sensitive person. Like I think of myself as highly sensitive in, I think some of us are just born with a little more sensitivity to the world, whether that's nervous system, whether that's in a spiritual sense. I don't know if I'll ever be able to nail down like why I think I was born with a sensitivity and then how I grew up, I think heightened that sensitivity. But you named something really important. um, That male depression shows up with anger. Yeah. And I think that's so unfortunate for the condition of being a male for before our, our masculine human beings that are out there, especially for that older generation that was basically taught they weren't allowed to have any feelings except anger. So that's yep. how that depression kind of had to come out. And we all sort of have this idea of what I of depression as more of a feminine energy of we're crying and we're weepy and we're sad. Yep. And I think a lot of men who are depressed have no idea that their anger is an expression of depression and really and not really knowing what else to do with that. The effects on a small child, you know, today we're grownups, we're grounded, you know, sure. we know how to take care of ourselves. If somebody lashes out at us, we're like, wow, I know how to not take that personally. I have empathy for you. You're having a bad day. <laughs> I can let that roll off. But as a little bitty sensitive being. Yeah. You know, I I think it can be so impactful. And I think that's why so many people are confused. They tell me things like, well, I shouldn't have as much anxiety. They'll hear my story and go, well, you have the big T trauma, right? Like, I understand why you've had struggles, but come on, I have little T trauma. But I've also learned that that, in a way, is almost like a backhanded compliment has been such a gift in my life because it was so glaring. It's like, yeah, someone sexually abused me when I was little. Bing, bing, bing. That's the biggie. You know, no mystery there about having some yeah. effects from that. I think actually it's harder in some ways to deal with the little T kind of trauma, just the constant discomfort in a home. And I think very often that's why we start acting out or start wanting to change our state through drugs and alcohol and why that draws us in so much. Because when we're little, we can't ever change our state. Yeah. I mean, I think as I look at all the behaviors I did, they were all about... Stealing made me feel alive. 
You know, my drugs and alcohol use, I was originally confused when I started hearing people talk about using it to avoid feelings because that wasn't how I thought of it. What I thought or what I, my experience was alcohol and drugs actually gave me feeling. They connected me to life. They made me want to participate in life. Whereas I didn't have, you know, I think what I had done is I had gotten so good at squelching whatever was happening that I was kind of dead inside. And so alcohol and drugs were my way of not feeling dead inside. And when I look at the behaviors that I was doing before that, they were all things that, that were, you know, you were on the edge, you know, it, it stealing made me feel something, you know, vandalism made me feel something. So, yeah. And, you know, your point about male uh, anger, you know, my depression, when it shows up, irritability is a big thing. It is a big thing. Um, what's also so interesting is I was just talking to my partner about this the other day, and I was saying to her, like, I was so worried about ending up like my father because he was the one, it was very easy to see, like, what he, how his behavior happened. It was so external and it was so loud and it was so prominent. I was so worried about becoming my father and I didn't see the risk of becoming my mother. And, and so what that meant was since I didn't know how to deal with depression, I just, I just fought the anger down as hard as I could. I don't want to be like my dad. I don't want to be like my dad. I don't want to be like my dad. So the only way I knew to do that was just to push it down. But as we know, you don't get to sort of selectively repress, right? You just push everything down. And so then I ended up more like my mother, which is the sort of dead feeling type of depression. Mm -hmm. So it's just interesting that I did, you know, like I, I, I was, I was uh, working very hard not to be one way and ended up kind of the other way to some degree as, as a result of it. I'm curious, were you raised with religion? No. Mm -mm. No. Okay. Not, not really. No. I mean. No, my dad's parents were Catholic, so every time we would go visit them, they lived about an hour away. You know, I'd end up going to, to you know, a Catholic mass, and but not in any prominent way, no. I've heard you talk about Zen. Can you share a little bit about how you went from 12 steps to finding Zen? Yeah, it's interesting. I was first exposed to Zen by my high school science teacher. Um, and this is a long time ago, like 1986, maybe. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. A long time ago. But there was something about it that grabbed me and intrigued me. I think part of it was he was such a, a big figure in my life as far as helping me. I don't think I'd have gotten through high school without him. So I think I was drawn to it that way. But there was something in it that I got from the very beginning, which was that what Zen and Buddhism in general was talking about was a way to be okay in the midst of lots of trouble in the world. And I was aware enough, even at, you know, 15 or 16, that the world could be a really difficult place. And so the thought that there was a way to be okay, even with external circumstances changing, sort of latched inside me. Um, and so then when I got sober, uh, 
you know, I got sober in a 12 step program and they talk about spirituality all the time. And I, I didn't, don't believe in, in, in a personal God. So I went, well, what, what else is out there? And so that sort of rekindled my interest in Buddhism and, um, Buddhism in general and, and then Zen specifically. And then a number of years later, I realized that one of the hurdles of my job as a podcaster, what I was, one of the challenges was I, every week I read a new book. And so every week I heard about a new practice to do or a new thing to try. And so I was all over the place. And I finally went, I need, I think I need something more anchoring than that for me. I think I need a path to be on for a period of time. And so when I, I started talking to a variety of people and what I realized is I just was drawn to Zen every, you know, the three or four people that, I mean, I talked to a lot of, a lot of different teachers to try and find who I wanted to be with. And I, I, when I narrowed it down to like the final three, it was like, they're all Zen. Apparently that Zen is calling me. I can't say why. One of the things I like about it is it has a very clear focus on direct experience without concepts. And I'm very intellectual. I mean, that's my orienting way that I, I think about the world. So Zen is a good counter to that because they basically say, well, that's not going to get you where you need to go. Not that it's a bad thing or it's a problem, but, but Zen is about direct awakening. And so the simplicity of that has always appealed to me. What I love about talking to people and hearing their story is that we're all so unique and different, but we're all so similar. I think so many people who are struggling and hurting, especially with the internet, they're chasing technique after technique after technique yeah. after technique. And there's certainly a time, I had it too, of just being hungry for what is out there. I want to sample everything. But I do think it is wise advice to at some point consider that if that feels distracting, if it feels a little scattered, if it's not grounding you in the way that you're wanting and you're needing and you deserve, it's so wise to choose one thing. For for me, for many years, it was yoga and just kind of nose to the grindstone, like practicing mm -hmm. six days a week and three hour sessions. And just, I needed that intensity, almost like an emotional boot camp, military training yep. of just, yep. let me just focus on this. And as time goes on and the internet expands, I see people really falling into that trap of everything, 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 or I need this technique. What is the next technique instead of just slowing down and being where you are, choosing that one grounding force and moving forward. So I think what you're saying today is going to help a lot of people that are listening. Yeah, it was, it was interesting because I thought about when did I change the most? And it was early in my recovery. And, and I went, well, well, why was that? I mean, on one hand, it was because there was a lot of, there was a lot of low hanging fruit to be changed, right? I was a heroin mm -hmm. addict, right? Like, I mean, you know, it, I, I, there's nowhere to go but up largely. But the other reason was the nature of 12 step programs. And in that, I showed up to the same meetings again and again. I heard the same things again and again. And there's a point at which that perhaps becomes problematic. But there's also something about continuing to go deeper and deeper and deeper into certain ideas. 
you know, we all consume enough ideas, you know, enough, uh, personal development or spiritual ideas by noon most days to sustain us for our entire life if we actually lived them. But that's harder to do than it is to just read about them. And I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm calling myself out in that. I'm not, I'm not calling everybody out any, any different than I call myself out. It's easier to, to read about and continue to consume new things and think the next book is going to be the thing. And I create a podcast that puts out two episodes a week, right? So like I am, you know, I'm part of the, 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 what's, what contributes to this in some ways. So. I, I always think it's really helpful to to orient and I try and orient and a lot of people I work with, you know, try and orient around like, you know, maybe you pick 80% of the time is a particular practice or a particular approach. And that's the bulk of where you spend your time for a, you know, for a certain amount of time. But that gives you 20% of your time you can kind of go explore because I know that's also part of who I am right? I, I get lit up by learning new things. I love, so I don't want to like squelch that or turn off something that feels very natural and very much who I am. So it's kind of finding what's the right balance of something that I, I do and go deeper in and really work on absorbing the ideas and really practicing it and applying it. And then, you know, all, while also giving myself the chance to explore other things. The problem with exploring other things is that we very quickly go, well, I should make that the main practice. So what I do is I commit to something for a period of time. So when I started my Zen practice again, you know, years, several years ago, I just said, all right, I picked a teacher and I'm going to work with him for six months. I'm going to do Zen and I'm going to work with him and I'm going to follow his guidance and direction for six months. At the end of six months, I can change my mind. I can do something different, but not before that, which is really good because like, you know, a weekend I was like, I don't know if this guy's the right teacher. My, my, my partner was like, didn't you say you were going to do this for six months? And I was like, oh yeah, right. Okay. Back to it. So that helps me because sometimes the thought like I'm picking my path forever is a little overwhelming, but I'm picking what I'm going to work on for six months or three months feels a whole lot more manageable, but also kind of keeps me moving in one direction for that period of time. I think you're naming what I might call the seeker's dilemma yeah, of, of managing our seeker spirit of, Ooh, what is that new thing? Look at that shiny, yeah. interesting piece over there while also grounding and letting a practice not just be the thing that we do, but become who we are. And we've got to marinate in it Yes, a good bit. Nobody can tell you how long or how often you've got to sort that out because there is no perfect formula for that in, in anything. And, and I think mostly I would say seekers listen to emotional badass and that is the seekers dilemma. We also want to yes. taste it all and, yep. fe and feel it all and dealing with those parameters of, oh, I can't do all of it all at once. I really can't. And nope. trying to is nope. making me feel a little batty. Let me pull back and center. I love that you can talk through giving yourself those sorts of chunks of marination time to really get in there, really get to know something, really see what it's going to do for you, how it's going to become part of who you are. Would you like to relax or fall asleep while learning about pivotal moments in history? If so, then try my new podcast, Calm History. It's a time machine of tranquility filled with immersive and fascinating stories from history. Prior episodes include 
The Pilgrims, Marco Polo, Henry Ford, Joan of Arc, Jackie Robinson, Klondike Gold Rush, Ancient Greek Olympics, Easter Island, and the Great Pyramid of Giza. There's also a six-part series about the Titanic. Just search your podcast player for Calm History or go to calmhistory.com. Yeah, and that six months has turned into, I don't know, five years? Like, you know, where I was like, okay, now there's been, there's been some minor changing of directions in there. And, but, but, you know, Zen has remained the, the primary orientation and it's been really good for me. You know, I read a book a week for my podcast, but I will read one Zen book for six months, you know? So the way I'm doing it is so different, right? In one, I'm, I'm, I'm consuming content. You know, and, and, and it's not that I'm not learning and I am and I'm passing it on via interviews. The other is a very different way of approaching it. You know, I created a program called Spiritual Habits several years ago. And part of the idea there was to pick some core spiritual principles that I've seen reflected in all traditions and like stay with them for a period of time. You know, um, we, in the program, we do them a week at a time, but then a lot of times it's intended that you then start over, you know? And so in the same way, you might work your way through the 12 steps and then start again, you know, mm-hmm. uh, there's a Jewish practice called Musar where they do this. They have d- different uh, versions of it are different, but they have 12 or 13 sort of core principles or, or virtues. Ben Franklin did this, right? There's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of systems that sort of show this like, yeah, you, you, you keep working back through the same material because by the time you come back around to it again, you're a different person. And these, these principles are basically bottomless, right? Like how, if, if a principle is like, um, let's say generosity, right? Like you, you don't exhaust that. You don't learn, you know, there's, you don't, you don't find, you're not like, all right, well now I've mastered generosity because there's always ways to open our heart more deeply. You know, there's always, if it's presence, if the, if the principle is presence, there's always ways to be more present. You'll never exhaust that. Would you share with us maybe one spiritual thing, teaching one thing to kind of open that door into spirituality? Many of the people that I work with now and over the years have a lot of religious abuse in their background. And I know for me being raised Catholic and just having all that good old Catholic shame as, <laughs> you know, the motivator of everything that you're supposed yeah. to do and not do. For a long time, I couldn't even deal with the word God. I, someone yeah. would say spirituality, I'd roll my eyes, that anger I still had to process really stood between me and developing spiritually. Sometimes I kind of giggle when I realize how far I've come as a spiritual being, as someone who's just peaceful, moving through the world, feeling spiritually connected to, to the universe, to the plants, to the wisdom in my dog that loves me unconditionally, something so much harder for us to do as humans yeah. with each other, being able to use all the moments of life to find that wisdom and to connect with it in a way that lights me up because life is so hard in so many other ways. I think for me, that's the, where the human part meets the spiritual part. And sometimes spiritual teachers, I think, miss some of our human parts and the the human psychology teachers miss some of our spirituality parts. 
where do you help someone like that kind of start leaning in? Well, you know, it's interesting because I've, I've often said, should the program be called spiritual habits? Should I call it philosophical habits? Should I call it psychological habits? These things bleed over into each other so much. To me, spirituality is really about what matters to you most and how do you connect with it? Like, that's it. Now, within that, there are lots of principles like you know, the first spiritual principle, the first spiritual habit we talk about is intention and attention, right? These are, these are core ideas that you'll find in any wisdom tradition and any philosophical tradition. And the vast majority of psychological work, right? Is why am I doing what I do? What's important to me? What matters? And then is my attention aligned with what that is. So I don't mean it in the sense of like manifesting things out of thin air. Like if I just think about a car, I'll I'll someday get a car. It's what do I, what really matters to me and why am I doing the things I'm doing and, and getting clear on that and spending time on that. And then, like I said, looking at where's my attention. Oh, my intention is to be present with my partner when we eat meals. Where's my attention? Oh, it's on my phone. All right, not in alignment, bring it back. You know, so that that's an example. So what we're doing in spiritual habits is taking some core principles and then we're applying a lot of behavior change science to how do we actually start to live these things in all the moments of our lives, right? Because that's, it, it, if you get to the point where you have like a, say a daily meditation or contemplative practice or journaling, that is great. You are, you are ahead of a lot of people, right? But even those of us that have that will find that like we, we stand up from meditating and then the next 18 hours roll by without us thinking about anything except what we, you know, our little wants and fears and concerns. So how do we remember more often throughout our days. And so that's what we're, you know, kind of doing in, 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 in spiritual habits. So, you know, a very simple thing you can do is we use this app uh, called mind jogger and mind jogger is an app that you can, it's an iPhone app. I think there's something called randomly remind me on Android. These, these apps are not great. I'm going to build my own one of these days, but what you can do is you can go in and basically say randomly remind me X number of times a day, pop up a message on my screen. So what we can say is, all right, five times today, I just want your phone to pop a message up on your screen that says, what was your intention for today? And where's your attention? And in that moment, all I do is just very quickly, what, what, what did I say was important to me about today? Oh yeah. All right. And am I, am I, how am I doing with that? pattern interrupt, right? Because we just get on autopilot. That's what stands between us most of the time and who we want to be is autopilot. So how do we pattern interrupt that and and just remind ourselves of some core truths that we believe to be true? That was sort of an answer to your question. You know, how do you lean into spirituality? I would say first is if you just, if it doesn't have any interest to you, that's okay. There's lots of things in the world to lean into, you know, lean into philosophy, lean into psychology. But I do think there is something in spirituality that points to connecting to things that are bigger than ourselves. And it doesn't have to be God. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't even have to be anything, you know, woo woo or mystical, right? But it's recognizing the interconnection of, of things that is very real. And it's recognizing, you know, where do I draw strength from? 
what what inspires me, what lifts me up, what makes me feel connected to the world. Those are all, you know, what's most important to me? What's my life about? Those are all to me, spiritual questions. And I think lead us to our principles. And and when we have the principles of, of who we are, what we value, that becomes the the course, the the guiding yeah. force, the map. And that's how we get less lost the older we get. And hopefully the wiser we get is that's actually the map. Totally. When I got sober the first time in AA, this was 1994 in Columbus, Ohio. And AA talks about God a lot. And so God was what was, you know, the Christian God was basically what was on order in 1994 Mm -hmm. in Columbus, Ohio. And I was desperate. So I said, okay, sign me up. I'll try and believe. That's surrender. I'll try, I'll try, I'll try. But the reality is I didn't. So when I went back out and drank again and I came back, I was like, I got to figure this. I got to figure this out. If I'm going to be in, if I'm going to be in a 12 step program, I'm going to have to figure this thing out. And so I really had to ask myself, you know, the second step says came to believe that a power greater than ourselves. Okay. What is a power that's greater than myself? And, and that I actually believe in. And one that I looked at is like, well, I believe this group, these people, is a power greater than myself. I know that I can come here and I can get support and that allows me to be stronger than I am on my own. And then the, the other one was what you just said. I went, oh, there appear to be principles that when I live by them, I am, my life is better. And so I came to believe that if I lived by those principles to the best of my ability, I would be able to handle whatever life gave me. And that was enough. That was, an, that was enough for me to then go on and embrace all the rest of the steps that do talk about God because I knew then what I meant. What I meant was, you know, these people and these principles, that's my higher power. And so, you know, that can absolutely, I think, I think that can absolutely be enough. It really can. I love that you're naming the power of the group because I think people that haven't experienced the power of a group coming together have no idea what it feels like to be in that power. Something very magical happens when we pull chairs together digitally or in real physical Mm -hmm. life to come together. And it it is amazing. I've often struggled to put words to it. It feels like some kind of magic. And in that moment, it's not all on our shoulders and we're connected. I think we were born biologically to be wired to each other as human beings. We really, we, we need each other. And when we have some maybe trauma or when we are the source of the trauma for ourselves and we're harming our own disconnection with ourselves too, we so need that. And when we feel broken and raw, a support group is such a beautiful, magnificent place to start growing into the fact that there is some power beyond just ourselves, greater than ourselves, like that teaching says. And when we're angry, if we're still bitter, if we're grieving, I think that's very hard to receive. It was very hard for me to swallow too. It just, I was like, I don't know about this. This is, I'm going to keep bringing resistance to this, but you just kind of over time, I sat with it and sat with it. And when it starts to make sense, the peace that it has given me has really driven me to continue to have spiritual practice. And in very much the simple ways that you're naming, it's not about having some kind of 12 or 15 step kind of spiritual morning ritual routine for me. Sometimes it's about just 
stopping and putting a hand on my heart and going, I'm really grateful to be here. All the magical things that had to come together for me to just be here in this body, in this moment, it, it'll make me, it'll choke me up yeah. right now. <laughs> I mean, I'm mm-hmm. one that's easy to cry. And the beauty of that is a source of power in my life when things get hard. And that, that is such a need. I think that's why so many people are struggling with depression because we're, we're missing that. And we're, we're not doing the greatest job, I think, as a species of teaching that to our young. Mm-mm. And this is why we're in so much struggle. So I'm so appreciative of you sharing your story and your simplicity around these spiritual s- teachings that can sometimes feel very heady and, and very maybe bogged down in information. When really, when you take the information and digest it, it's so simple. It's so simple. Yep. Yep. And one of the things I'm most grateful of and, and, and proud of and is that the spiritual habits program, we actually create small groups for people. Cause I have known for years the transformational power. And I've been like, how do you get that for people who aren't alcoholic or mm-hmm. addicts? And so, in the, in the spiritual habits program, we've got like a big group that meets once a week, but we divide people into small groups and those small groups meet once a week. And many of those groups go on for continue meeting years afterwards. One of those groups just all met together in person for the first time in Sedona last week Wow! and the pictures and the love and the, and so I'm just so happy in some small way to be, to be, finding a way to facilitate some of that because I've been, ever since the podcast started growing, I've been like, I know all these people feel similar to each other. Mm-hmm. How can they support each other? Because that's better than getting support from me. And I want, I, I'm not going to say it's better than getting support from a therapist. It's a different thing. It's a very important thing. I say to my people that it's one thing when I'm the expert saying the things. Yeah. It's another when your your peer in the group who doesn't have that expert label it is showing you in real yes. time through their experience. That is so much more impactful to our psyche. Yep. Yep. And that I think is surprising to people because in society we think, oh no, the expert knows all the things. That's where I'm gonna do all my learning from. And I think one of the little secrets of life is that no, actually, we're gonna learn so much more from each other, from from those non-experts. And I can be the host of that or the guide of that or the force that brings it together, but it is more powerful than what I can do one-on-one with people it is. Absolutely. Absolutely. Eric, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. If there's any episode that inspires you that you want to share, that's a big part of how this show spreads all over the world. We thank you so much. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and anywhere you listen to your podcasts. I want to thank Eric for coming on the show. To learn more about Eric Zimmer, go to oneufeed.net, O-N-E, oneufeed.net, to learn more about Eric Zimmer and his show, The One You Feed. I'm an emotional badass, you're an emotional badass, and together we are where Moxie meets Mindful. I'll see you right here next time for a brand new episode. Light and love. Bye-bye.
Would you like to relax or fall asleep while learning about history? If so, then try my podcast, Calm History. You'll learn all about famous explorers, inventions, civilizations, ancient wonders, and even the Titanic. Just search your podcast player for Calm History or go to calmhistory.com.